I analyze dreams to keep my head level Strip mining the system to stare at the devil A whiny voice flexing but it got no real power You tell them to flee and they'll be gone in an hour One words are like brass knuckles connecting to y'all's jaws of glass I ain't losing, I don't lose, so fight fair This is for the real ones who ears are open, no they're here There's a reason my voice comes through while you're sitting here Something gets a fine tooth, a bump on your way to work And other know the spirit is hitting in, so let it work Yeah Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, you're tuned in to Glory Podcast. I'm your host with the ghost, the Holy Ghost, that is, Monk. I'm the host hoarding all the hostess snacks, um, Monk. And this is the last episode of season two. And like I told y'all, we're only switching up the format a little. Uh, for season three, I have some ideas, but again, I'm not, I'm kind of excited because I'm not exactly sure what it's going to look like, but I'm going to try to sing out a little bit different format, a little bit different uh, way we're going to release shows. And then also the content, I'm still going to, I'm still dropping the hammer and giving you the best fresh content when it comes to wisdom, Q and a fitness and wherever my brain takes me, wherever the Lord takes me. Uh, but also just, it's going to be a little bit different. That's all I can say. So I'm excited about the ride. Um, and it's going to allow me not to be so stagnant so I can deliver better content for y'all because the goal of all of this is to basically give you what we call evergreen content, meaning you could go back and listen to my very first episode 10 years from now, and it would still be relevant. Right, the concepts, the wisdom, the knowledge that is being dropped can still benefit you. That makes sense. It's not trying to be like this entertainment podcast where you listen to it and you're like, ha ha, laughy, laughy, ha ha, but then you go back and listen to it a year later and it's not relevant. So those of you who are new and just getting on the train, man, go back and listen to our previous episodes. There's tons of gems. There's tons of knowledge to be gained in those old episodes. But as you could probably guess, right, when you're trying to produce and provide evergreen content, it takes a lot of work to get there because these ideas have to sit. These ideas have to cook. And then a lot of times I'm sitting on ideas that I don't know how to put language to them. So then they have to cook and they have to, you know, I have to sit with them and think and pray through them in order to give them the language that they need to be expressed in a way that's going to be understood by people. So I'm excited. I don't know about y'all. Again, some of y'all who are listening, man, I'm, I'm opening this up. Some of y'all who are listening, you want to come on as a guest, I'm going to open the invitation to you. Or you want to come on as a guest, pitch me an idea, pitch me a show idea, pitch. But you got to you got to come drop the knowledge. You know, you can't be you can't be messing around just saying you want to be on a podcast to be on a podcast. You got to have a clear idea of what you want to say, what you want to talk about. Hit me up with it and we can develop, we can nail it down on a schedule, develop an episode together 
and that'll be that. And then the other thing is like, if you got a brand or you got something you want to promote, that's my heart is to promote people coming up doing big things. That's that's my heart. I want to promote people. I want to be you know I want to be the plug for you. So. Like hit me up if you're in that category. Some of y'all listen, y'all got my direct contact info, so hit me that way. If not, if you don't have my direct contact in info, uh, just email glorymusic at gmail.com and we can set it up that way. Last thing, you've been listening for a while, go get my book. Like stop what you're doing right now, go to Amazon and type in uh, Reclaiming the Man. A Rough Guide to Knowing Your Divine Self by Matt Monk. That's M-O-N-K. That's the that's author name. That's my name. All right. Get that book. Again, this book is one you'll read now, and it'll benefit you hugely. But again, it's a, you'll go back. You can go back and read that book a year later. Having already read it, it's going to hit you different. Again, the idea, evergreen content. It's a book you could you can literally read once a year, and it's going to benefit you. It's going to benefit those around you, particularly if you are a man or a young man, you know, coming out, coming up, trying to figure this thing out. That's the whole point. If you have read the book, please leave me a rating and review on Amazon and let me know what you think. All right. But getting into it today, just have a little mixture so we, we do the Q&A episodes from time to time, and this episode is going to kind of be a mixture of a little bit of Q&A and then just some concepts. But I saved these last two questions. One is a question that I get asked a lot, but I haven't really, or I've been asked a lot, especially over the course of the last year, developing the season. And... I've been saving it to try to put it in here at the end of the season. And then i got a couple more questions I'll try to hit on. And then just a couple concepts to dig into and we'll wrap it up. So we'll get into these Q&A because they face kind of these really big questions that we address in the podcast. Which most of this podcast, man, yeah, we're addressing the big questions. And then occasionally we dip into some of the basketball stuff because I'm a basketball nerd. But that's the trajectory. That's kind of the format we're going to look at for today's episode. So uh, the first question that I'm looking at, and I'll see why it's going to go a bunch of different directions. It says, I'm 18. I just graduated high school. I'm stepping into the real world. Um... What are the biggest problems my generation faces? And uh, what's the biggest difference between me coming into the real world right now in my generation and between you when you were my age and your generation? So a lot going on in that question. So 18, you know, you'd be considered a Gen Zer. And so the biggest problem your generation faces. <clears throat> I don't know if we can put it down to just one thing. And you got to look at it this way. Things that the other generations would be saying are problems for your generation. Those things can be leveraged into strengths if we approach them the right 
way. You know, like one of the biggest problems my generation faced, right, being a Gen Y, a millennial, um, although, and as I mentioned in previous podcasts, I'm actually part of a micro generation within the millennial context because of the year, the time frame in which I was born. I was, I was a teenager when 9-11 happened, and so the way I was raised before 9-11 was very different than a lot of other Gen Yers that were little kids not born or they, they were little kids during 9-11. So the way they were born, you know, I'm, I'm 16 years old when 9-11 happened. So my ages one through 16 was a, was more like a Gen Xer. And then after 16 coming up into my college years and early adulthood was a lot more in line with what a Gen Yer would look like. Um, but one thing they've said about Gen Y, a lot of people have said is like, you know, there's one, a sense of entitlement, and this is true, but all that sense of entitlement comes from, you got to understand where the sense of entitlement comes from. It comes from wanting to feel purpose in your work. So, right, a lot, Gen X, and then even going into some of the baby boomers, the I, there, there wasn't this idea of like your work had to have a deep, meaningful purpose. Your work had to go out and have an impact on the world. Right, this idea of coming a generation later into early Gen Y and then throughout Gen Y was you're not only just you're not going out there just to get a job. Your job has to have an impact, has to have a deep meaning, has to have a deep purpose. You have to change the world, right? You're gonna change the world. The work that you're doing day in and day out has to change the world. So right, it was kind of this head in the clouds I idea and so a lot of people from my generation went after these really big things but when you go after the really big things like that and you don't understand or know the practical side of what gets those things accomplished you're left with you have a lot of soft skills but you don't have hard skills meaning you don't have the teeth okay so a lot of millennials came out with their head in the clouds and we weren't very gritty and we weren't very resilient. And the second something didn't work out the way we thought it should in our mind, according to our dream and our purpose, we would cash it in. So, and that's been a big criticism of my generation. We aren't very gritty. We aren't very resilient. And we're having to learn how to do that now with a lot of us now when you know when we're in our late 20s early 30 early to mid 30s or um i got the older end of the generation early 40s most of us by the time you know you're 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 mid to late 30s early 40s you figure this thing out but you're having to learn how to be gritty and resilient a lot later in life whereas the generation before us i learned that when they were teenagers okay but the trade-off is, like, especially, I mean, we'd say with Gen Xers, but also especially with baby boomers, the idea wasn't you had to go obtain some super lofty goal and change the world, right? You're talking about people that came from a generation where their parents fought in World War II or their parents came up during World War II. If they didn't fight in World War II, they came up where there was this big world, world war happen. You know, and then the boomers, the baby boomers, a lot of them fought in Vietnam. They saw all these conflicts. The world changed. And so the value was put on, hey, you just go get a job and make money. 
go get a job and make money and provide for your family. That's it. That's all like, like that's the goal. Do whatever you got to do to make money and provide a nice life for your family. Well, now a lot of us came into this generation of, okay, I have a nice living. I'm provided for. So then because you're not worried about having the provisions met, there's not a war going on, all these other things. We came up with our head in the clouds, you know, college, 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 college is being pushed. Everybody has to be a college and then everybody has to go to college. And then once college has been pushed, right, we, you have to have your head in your clouds. You, you don't want to just make money, making money, but not feeling a, dense, a deep sense of purpose and accomplishment, not being able to change and leave an impact on the world that like, like go broke doing that rather than selling out and making a bunch of money, but being unhappy, even though you're providing for you and yours, that is how it was told. So the strength of this myth that Gen Y was grown up under is that people in my generation have a longing and a calling for deep purpose and deep meaning and if you can bridge the gap between work and meaning they go above and beyond what could be expected of them and are accomplishing things at just a whole nother level seeing the world in a different way so what was seen as a weakness is a strength if we apply it in the same way so with gen z Really, the biggest thing, in my opinion, and again, I'm working with a bunch of uh, work day in and day out with kids in Gen Z, been doing it for a while. And so for me, well, the biggest problem y'all have is the exposure to everything. And then what happens, the results of the exposure, you're exposed to so much information and you have access to so many things with ease that. Like, that wasn't a thing for me growing up and my generation growing up. And so, one, I think with all of the exposure and the ease of access, y'all have the things y'all actually have a, are really good at self-control. We would think these kids are impulsive. They can't control themselves. Well, if we look into it in regards to how much you're exposed to compared to when I was a kid or when I was a teenager and how much I was exposed to, I would have probably been way worse off and way worse than a lot of y'all coming up, particularly like this uh, young man that asked this question. So I think this exposure, again, one is a problem because you're just exposed to so much and you're constantly having to process information all the time. Because you're processing information all the time, right? You're great at seeing all this information, processing it, and then going about and doing your thing. The disadvantage is, is what I notice is the lack of ability to focus on something or to come to a deep knowledge of purpose and understanding of self, which is hard because you got all this chatter going on out here to a degree that's unprecedented, and so I would say the biggest problem you face is this ability to 
choose one or two things and focus and start to dig deep in them. And then digging deep into those focused areas, not being distracted by everything else going on. And it's easy to be extracted because there's just so much more access out there right now. You can come to find a deep sense of commitment and purpose. And I think that is the thing you can leverage that weakness of the lack of attention, but being able to be exposed to a whole lot of different things and process them out quickly. So if you can take that skill of being able to be exposed to so much information, so many opportunities, et cetera, et cetera, be exposed to that, but also work on that ability to focus and go deeply into one or two things. When you marry those two things together, you're like a superhuman. You know, it's like being a supercomputer in that you can see all the different piece possibilities and know how to access different things when you need them, but you're also able to choose those one or two areas to focus on and go deep into them and find a deep, deep sense of purpose and commitment. If you marry those two things together, right, that weakness of distractibility actually becomes a strength. <clears throat> and this is what a lot of entrepreneurs have been able to do. A lot of entrepreneurs aren't necessarily great at one thing, right? But they're able to take all of the pieces, all the information, all the exposure, all that bring it in together, find a thread or two, focus on that thread, and then develop, allow it to be developed into something. So that, that's just something, you know, in terms of what you are stepping into. I think the biggest problem is just not being able to focus and you're not being able to focus because literally the world is competing for your attention. The whole economy, the whole economy of the world that you're being sold is based upon your attention. So your attention is gold. Your attention gives everything the worth. So pay attention to what you're paying attention to, you know, and audit what your attention goes to. And we can all take that advice, but specifically for this question, that's one thing I would suggest. <clears throat> and that really gets into the biggest difference, right? You ask the biggest difference between me gr growing up, when I was your age, you know, and now I'm 20 years removed from that versus where you are at right now is we didn't have exposure to all this stuff. I use this example a lot. I've used it on the podcast before, but, you know, uh, where are we at? So 12 years ago, I finished grad school or 13 years ago, right? I finished graduate school. So you back, look back 2009, 2010, I, these seminar papers I had to write to graduate on top of my thesis. Um, I had to work really hard on that stuff. I had to spend hours um, buried in a, li a university library finding good sources that would support the idea that I had. Now... Right now, I can get online, so I just spent hours digging in the library, checking books out, doing interlibrary loans, all of this stuff to nail down, you know, the, say, like 10 sources that really allowed me to unlock the idea I was trying to communicate. I can get online now, and in 30 minutes, I can locate all of those sources. So that's what I'm saying, like, the difference is in terms of exposure 
and the richness of the information that we have and the ease of access to it. What took me a year of research in a library digging, I can literally find in 30 minutes online now. So it's a game, like it's a game changer. And, and that's the biggest difference. You know, the trade-off to that, though, is you're going to have to specifically really work on learning how to focus to get things done. But also just the decision-making thing. Uh, people in your generation have, like, free play has been taken away. Let's just put that out there. Free play and the ability to play and not, and, and not have an agenda. And that should happen until you're a little bit older. You know, we have so many kids growing up now that every second of every 15 minutes of their life is scheduled and put into a nice, you know, wrapped up acti- a nice boxed in activity from that time they're four to the time they graduate high school. And then the point you get out of high school and you get into the real world and you don't know how to make decisions because every and solve problems because every second of your life has been scheduled and put within the framework of a nice activity. And so that's the other thing is this ability to solve problems and make decisions, this ability to be able to go through things when you don't feel like going through them as well. But that's a good question. Now the next question I got, and then we'll go into some other stuff. But um, it says, Monk, can you break this down for me a little bit? Uh, fear God and keep his commandments. Like, what, what does that mean to you? Are we supposed, you say that God's a loving God and a loving father, but why are we supposed to be afraid or fearing a God that's a loving um, and that's from, he's referencing Ecclesiastes twelve, thirteen. there. So first thing, we, we want to get some context. So Ecclesiastes, if you go study this book out, and I would recommend just as a resource, check out the Bible Project. Go to YouTube, type in Bible Project, and they got breakdown videos of Ecclesiastes. Go watch they have one, uh, I believe it's just about the book at large, and then they have a couple more videos dedicated to Ecclesiastes, breaking down more of the concepts and more of the themes and stuff like that. But uh, for that book itself, the context of Ecclesiastes, I mean, theoretically, we're saying that Solomon wrote this, King Solomon, who's reportedly the wisest man that ever lived. Uh, whether he wrote it or not, Depends on which scholar you look at. There's some debate about whether he actually wrote it or um, he wrote it and the person, the narrator of the book is just a character he's created. But whatever the case, you have to understand that in the context of this book, this is like a bitter old man. It's a bitter old man who's about to die looking back through his life and kind of reporting to you thematically, here's all the things I've done, and then here's what, um, 
here's what the world is like according to my experience. And then he gets to the end of chapter 12. So you always have to put it into the context of who the author is. This is who the author or who the narrator, who the perspective of the narrator is. You got to think a, an old man that's at the end of his life. And there's a tone of bitterness throughout the book when you start to read it. So there's that. Second thing. You've got to understand the cultural context this is coming out of Israel, the culture. So you're talking about a people who had a covenant with God. They actually had several covenants of God, but they continue to trade different covenants for other covenants. So now they're in this covenant where they have to, they have to follow their interpretation of the Mosaic law reinterpreted through the Levitical code, which gives them 613 laws that they're supposed to follow. And then they feel like if they don't upkeep it, they don't keep up with the 613 laws, then something bad happens and that's God punishing them. Right? So this is the cultural context through which the author is writing from as well. So you've got to interpret what you're reading through these two contexts just to give you an idea. Now, this idea of God, the way God was seen, was through rewards and punishments based upon their ability to follow these 613 laws. If we trace it back, you have... The, the original covenant between Adam and God, which was union. God walked with Adam in the cool of the day. God is there literally doing life with Adam and Eve until the fall. And he's still there doing it with it after the fall, but their mindset changed. That's another discussion. He comes later through Abraham, establishes a covenant with Abraham. Okay. Things happen, comes later, establishes a covenant with Moses. But what's happening every time he establishes a covenant is that the people are trading relationship, closeness, and intimacy with God for a set of rules. So every time the rules get more and more strict, the rules get more and more strict. Well, what happens when you break rules? Whether you get caught or not, what happens when you break when you break a rule, right? You know that you broke the rule, and then it changes something in you. You break a rule, you break a law that you're supposed to follow, right? It changes your character. And so they're trying to live under these laws, these 613 laws, but they can't quite keep up with the 613 laws. They keep breaking the laws. Um, and so gradually, over the course of a couple hundred years, over the course of a few generations, right, they, they turn into these characters who begin to see God as just someone who meets out punishment, right, rewards and punishments based on how their, um, how they're able, their ability to follow the law or not. And it's a messed up way of viewing God because God is not like that. But their perception of who God is is like that. So this percep this person's perception of God also comes through this cultural context of understanding God as a rewarder 
a rewarder or a punisher based upon keeping his commandments, right? Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole of the matter, he says in the verse. Other places in the Bible references reference fear God and keep his commandments. This is the beginning of knowledge. Or Proverbs 3, 5, which is probably Solomon also, another book, though, and it says, uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Um, so we can look at it in terms of what we understand fear as, but it's okay. I'm going to follow all the rules and do what God says, because if I don't, something bad will happen. But that's a very shallow understanding of who God is. That's a very shallow way of like it's basically saying I'm only doing good because I don't want something bad to happen to me. What does that say about the condition of your heart? What does that say about the condition of the heart of humanity in this place? Not a lot. It's basically saying, oh, I'm only following the laws because I don't want something bad to happen to me. I'm not following the laws because I'm a good person and God is a part of me and that's who I am. So it's coming from this place of shame. It's coming from this place of guilt. It's coming from this place of having a transactional relationship with God. And God does not desire a, transform a transactional relationship with you. God is a transformative being and he desires intimacy, not a transaction. And so pardon the metaphor here, but the way the children of Israel, from which the writer of Ecclesiastes, he's a member of that tribe, is coming from the children of Israel for lack of a better comparison, the way they engage with God is the way a man or a woman will go buy a prostitute or a gigolo, right? It's true. You go give them the money. You have that momentary intimacy in exchange for a price, but what happens, like you don't, that's not true intimacy, Right. Oh, I, I made all the I followed all the laws, God. Here, I checked off all the boxes. Here, the true intimacy, what God desires is that intimacy of union, like between a husband and a wife. You know. I'm not having to pay my wife every time we want to hang out like you would like it would if I went to a prostitute or a woman like found a gigolo and paid the gigolo. To, to do what a gigolo does, if that makes sense. Those are transactional relationships that create a false form of intimacy. Whereas God is desiring true intimacy and he actually paid the price for all of that. And this is what happens when Christ comes, reignites humanity saying, hey, I did it all. I did every ounce of it. All you got to do is wake up and realize that this isn't a transactional thing anymore. Okay, but the way God is used here in terms, so <clears throat> let me backtrack. We have fear God and keep his commandments, and we have to see it from the perspective of this king who's old and bitter, and then we have to see it through the culture in which he's in, which is this, this people who understand God as a rewarder and a punisher, 
through the context of these 613 laws that they're trying to follow. Now, that being said, this word fear here is fear God and keep his commandments. It's not fear like we think about it. Like, oh, I've got to fear God and respect God because if I disrespect him, he's going to punish me. No, this word fear here in the way it's used means it's a deep and reverent honor, respect, and awe. You know, it's the type of love like you would have for a really, really, your, your father, you know, for instance, if you're older and you understand like, oh, you had to re- just pretend you had a really good dad. You respect that man. You honor that man. Or if it's, it's just a respect and honor that you would have for somebody that is really skilled in what they do. Right. You give them that respect and that honor that is due. But in this sense, the respect and the honor is due to the creator, the one who made you. And it's not out of fear. It's not out of duty. It's not out of obligation. It's just a straight fact that God is so God that you can't help but not respect him and honor him and, quote unquote, fear him not because I'm scared, but because I understand who he is and who I am. And if I understand that, I'm going to bless God and sing his praises because I know how good God is. And then through that context, knowing that we are in union, I am going to keep his commandments, not from a sense of duty, not from a sense of obligation, not from a fear of punishment, I'm going to keep that covenant and keep according to his commandments because it's who I am. And it's actually not even me in my willpower doing it. It's me released to his will and it's him doing it through me. So you remove your own willpower and your own strength from this equation And that's how you keep the commandments of God is it becomes this fruit that's that's happening in your life rather than the worry of, oh, did I do this right? Did I do that right? Did I do this right? Did I do that right? And giving it back to God. See, the old covenant, they didn't give anything back to God. They did all the task and then they would give it to the priest and the priest would absolve them. You know, so there's these layers of intermediaries, and then they didn't really believe they could hear the voice of God or directly touch God, even though God all the time is like, I want to move through you, I want to move through you, but you, your character, the vehicle through which you experience life is becoming so twisted and so vile and so messed up that you can't even feel me, you can't even see me unless it comes through the priest or occasionally an individual would get it and understand it and allow God to move through them that way. And then these guys were considered prophets, what we would be calling prophets. So that's a good question though. But anytime, particularly in the old Testament, if you're reading and you hear that the fear of the Lord or fear God and all of this, understand that one, the cultural context that this is a group of people that understood God through a transactional nature right, of blessings and punishments, 
but also understand when you get into what the word fear means in the Hebrew, which this word comes from, the language it was written in, most of the time that word means a deep reverence, awe, and respect, right? So you could think of somebody who's just really, really great at what they do, someone you really, really admire. What if they were in the room with you and like you had their cell phone number and you could call them at any time. How would you approach that relationship? That's kind of a good analogy for what this word fear means when you see it. So that's a great question though, because I think there's a lot of misconceptions of fear God and keep his commandments, but we take it in terms of this, oh, I'm going to be scared of God. And I'm so afraid, right? It's the analysis paralysis, right? I'm so afraid to act that I don't know what to do. I'm so afraid of letting God down that I can't just live my life. Like I just compare it to my son or my daughter. I don't want them so scared of me that they're afraid to do anything. Like, no, I give them my blessing and I empower them to go be the people that they are. And then, however, if something goes awry, I'm going to have to teach them. I'm going to have to guide them. I might have to give them a little bit of discipline and then teach them self-discipline. But that's not a punishment, if that makes sense. The punishment the children of Israel experienced were the results of their own decisions that they made. It wasn't God punishing them. <laughs> it was... God said, okay, you're trying to do this thing without me, and then you commit to this covenant where you see me in terms of rewards and punishments. So you're literally setting up a system where you, <clears throat> you subject yourself to your own punishment through your own bad decisions. So a lot of stuff going on in that question. Uh, a couple more things I'm going to get into. This isn't really a question, but I wanted to leave y'all with this because... Uh, it's been a theme and a thread throughout this season. So I'm going to read a little bit from my book and we'll wrap this thing up. So this is from Reclaiming the Man. This is from a section in Reclaiming the Man called Which Character Are You? So on some previous episodes this season, we've gone into the pro parable of the prodigal son with the two brothers, how those two brothers are human archetypes relating to, say, Cain and Abel. Uh, you also have, we went through another chapter where we looked at Esau and Jacob, which they line up with the same archetypes, meaning Cain and Abel, Esau and Jacob, the older brother and the younger brother, right? We all have these stories of two brothers, and they're all telling the same story, okay? And so that's what I mean by which character are you is which one of these archetypes do you represent? And the answer is uh, you have the nature of all of this inside of you. You have this ability to be judgmental, to be <clears throat> to withhold yourself from others, to be self-righteous. And you also contain this ability to be rebellious, flat out rebellious and not honoring of God or your people or your culture, wherever it is you come from. There's a ditch on either side. As you see, what's in the middle is God the Father, the middle way, as it has been called, 
is God the Father beckoning you into his union. You don't have to be this way. You don't have to be that way. Learn to know his voice and his hearts. Because when you get to the end of it with all of these stories, like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son, he's wrong. The younger brother in the parable of the prodigal son, he's wrong. But which one gets restored at the end of the story? The younger rebellious brother is the one that's restored at the end of the story, right? Um, the older brother's story ends with God outside, or the father, an archetype for God, leaves the party to go minister to the older brother who's out there sulking, right? And the older brother could represent um, the Pharisees, if we use a New Testament example. It could represent someone who's so self-righteous that they can't get over the fact that somebody who did a bunch of bad stuff is now welcome in the kingdom. But that's how this works. So this is from a section titled, Which Character Are You? Those are the characters. So know where you stand and know that you have the capacity to both be self-righteous and also be rebellious. And so allow your character. This whole thing is about God developing your character. We want, we want like the easy solution, but sometimes God's given us everything in our environment for which we need to transform and to learn more of who he is and more of who we are. But if we deny it, we don't allow our character to be developed because our character is the vehicle through which God operates in the world around us. So you could have the gift, you can have the calling, and you can receive what you think is the blessing but if your character isn't ready to handle that, you end up falling by the wayside. It ends up being very, very bad for you and those around you. This is what happens in celebrity culture a lot. You have these people who are supremely anointed, but they're building on the wrong foundation. Their character was not allowed to be developed to handle the gift that God gave them. God doesn't retract the gift, right? It's a gift. It's free. But if you allow God to steward that gift, God is going to create these circumstances around you necessary to where your character can handle what he's putting on you. If you do not give that over to God, right, it's like giving a it's like giving a three year old the keys to a Ferrari and saying, go drive. Well, yeah, that thing's going to crash. It's probably going to kill the three-year-old um, or hurt the three-year-old really badly. But what else happens? There's collateral damage, right? A three-year-old driving a Ferrari, you know, down, down Main Street in the middle of a big city with pedestrians and stuff. There's going to be some collateral damage. Other people are going to get hurt. So this is the importance of allowing God to develop your character. So a bunch of y'all might be sitting here right now and you're like, you feel like you're stuck or whatever, you're not stuck. Give it to God. But you're you could be in a place where God's developing. He's building the vehicle, right? We don't want to make the road. We don't want we're not trying to make the road ready for the vehicle. We want to make the vehicle ready for whatever the road is. That's what your character is. Okay. We're preparing the person for the road. We're not preparing the road for the person. That's how God works. It's the inside out nature of the kingdom. So here we go. We're in the book. Uh, when we live in our divine nature, we receive the fruits of the spirit. Like the father in the parable of the prodigal son, who is willing to give over massive amounts of his wealth to an undeserving son and leave a grand party he is throwing to go tend to another ungrateful son. 
Our divine nature is never concerned with self-preservation. If Christ were concerned with self-preservation, he would have told Peter to keep his sword out and commence to slicing up the guards of the Sanhedrin who came to arrest him. This is an aspect of Jesus' coming that his own community misunderstood. Most of the Jewish nation thought the Messiah was coming to destroy all of their enemies by use of force. The expectation was for Jesus to gallop in on a white horse, pulling a big brass chariot, and sack Rome, leaving rivers of blood in his path. But on the cross, Jesus exposed an entire nation acting as an archetype for the fruits of the flesh. His actions on the cross demonstrated firsthand that the fruits of the Spirit are more powerful. Right After all, we are still talking about Christ, but... The Sanhedrin, right? He was arrested by his own people and Peter was like, he pulls out a sword and Peter's like, all right, uh, let's fight these dudes off. He cuts a dude's ear off, you know, trying to fight and Christ tells him, Peter, put your sword down. And then they go crucify him. But in the act of crucifying him, they expose how messed up they and the rest of humanity really are. Back in the book, after all, we are still talking about Jesus and his ministry in the present day. Ironically, it is the man, Jesus, not concerned with his own self-preservation, who continues to receive respect and honor. How many Jewish revolutionaries of Jesus' day do you hear mentioned around the water cooler at work? The point is that Jesus operated through the Spirit first in union with God the Father. Through the chosen people of God, Israel fell into the trap of the ego or their flesh placing their faith in their own ability to follow God's law as a means of preserving their nation. While their actions had a form of godliness, their hearts were far from God. That's Isaiah 29:13. Israel and its eventual destruction represents the operation of the flesh in full force. To the individual then, if you believe your own efforts will bring you salvation, God will honor that. But you will be held to relying on your flesh for self-preservation. If you step into your divine nature, then your focus is on the spirit and God will preserve you. So God, God honors your free will so much that he will actually allow you to hold a false perception of himself and yourself and live out that story and the results of that story, you know? This is just like Israel. Israel crucifies Christ. Israel starts preying upon its own people so much to where they're eating each other's children. Right? And then they're, and then the temple is destroyed. That's how bad it gets. Right? Around 70 AD. You know, so fast forward 30, 40 years after Christ, this is how bad it gets. If you go study this out. You could check out Eusebius's history of the Christian church has a good summary of what that time was like, but it's the same in your own life. If you're not giving it over to God, your own, you're trying to save yourself. God will allow you to live that out in the fruits of it though. Again, the fruits of the flesh, not the fruit of the spirit. So back in the book, to connect to some of our previous examples and archetypes, Jacob, so we're talking about Jacob and Esau here, and um, we'll talk about the prodigal son also. So back in the book, Jacob used deceit to steal the place of honor from his brother. 
Esau relied on this skill as a hunter to demand respect and honor from his brother. Again, neither one realized he was worthy of respect and honor because of who he was, each a son of his father. Likewise, the younger brother in the story of the prodigal son breaks the rules of his culture to receive his inheritance prematurely. This bump in momentary wealth allows him the temporary status, respect, and honor that he feels that he deserves. His older brother attempts to gain his father's favor, respect, and honor through the work he does in his father's house. But neither brother allows the respect and honor to flow from his father. What you get in either representation are two men striving in their flesh to receive honor and respect in order to receive the validation they crave. So again, they're getting into this concept that men crave respect and honor and they are validated through that usually by things that they do, skills that they have. But we have to understand that whatever skill that we have ultimately comes from God and whatever environment we're in before we get pat ourselves on the back too hard was actually given to us for God and comes from the Father. Okay, so like with Jacob and Esau or with the brothers in the parables of the prodigal son, right? Jacob and Esau, right? They have a rich father who has provided all this for them and there they are squabbling about inheritance then in the parable of the prodigal son, you have a one son who asks for the inheritance before his father dies, which is totally against the norms of his culture. But his father's such a good dude that he's like, here, take it and go, go do what you're going to do. And then he has the other brother who's like working, working, working in his father's house, trying to build the brand, trying to build the family business. And then he feels like his father still does not respect him and honor him. But both of them, didn't know who their father was and neither of them um, recognized that, hey, the only reason I was able to do what I did because of who my father was. All right. So back in the book, we'll hit a couple more and then we'll wrap this up. As mentioned in the verses listed above, a man's desire is for respect and honor. Women are different in that they crave love. So I go into this concept earlier in the book, earlier in that chapter. Um, if you even look at the fruits of the spirit and you look at different examples, when Paul's admonishing husbands and wives, Paul tells the wives to honor their husbands, whereas he admonishes the husbands, hey, love your wives. And so I think there's a real need, and I delineate this out in the book, that men in who they are naturally are going to crave and need respect and honor and without receiving respect and honor and getting that type of validation that leads them down this path of vices or the fruits of the flesh. Whereas women, it's not the respect and it's not the honor. They want to feel loved, right? And in that love, it's feeling connection with their husbands or with the people around them because the connection is more important than the validation through respect and honor that usually comes through some sort of skill like it would with a man. So uh, women are different in that they crave love. I'm back in the book. For men, this inborn craving for respect and honor is a type of validation, and it is initiated through action. As a man, your deeds must align with your inner workings. Your talk must match your walk, and your walk must match your talk. When this occurs, 
You will receive respect and honor. Christ was the king of this. If your actions and your inner desires do not match up, you may receive a sense of temporary validation, but the actions you commit will turn to atrocities. The person you become in the midst will be no one you ever intended to be. At the end of the day, God is more concerned with the development of your character. This is what walking in the spirit is all about. Ironically, by not striving to receive honor and respect, you will receive these gifts as a byproduct of your walk. Your character then is the vehicle through which your God-given gifts can be manifest. Without the development and tests of character, these same gifts will destroy you. So let that be an encouragement and admonishment to you. Your gifts are gifts. They're given. They're irrevocable. But if you do not continually give them to God and honor God with your gifts, those gifts will destroy you because you're taking the gift and you're using it for a purpose it wasn't meant for and you're not allowing your character to grow. Right. If you allow that character to grow, right, that's your vehicle through which you're walking this life through. And God wants to create in you this vehicle that can tackle and handle whatever the road is going to look like. And that's all I got. We're into season two, baby. That's it. Wrapped up and done. So, again, you got some ideas for shows, episodes. Email them at glorymusic at gmail.com. Or if you're in my inner circle, you know, just hit me up directly. If you got some ideas or you want to come on, we'll nail it down. And then go get my book, Reclaiming the Man, A Rough Guide to Knowing Your Divine Self. That's Matt Monk, M-O-N-K, as the author on Amazon. You can find that there. But as always, until next time, ladies and gentlemen, it's your boy Monk. Peace and blessings to you from the Most High. I'm out.